So as I promised in the email, we're going to have a lot of fun today. Uh, we're going to go in a different direction. And I indicated uh, in the email that it's kind of motivated by the spirit of Ben Bagbag's statement at the end of Pirkei Avot. Uh, Pirkei Avot uh, has five chapters. And the sixth is a bright that got added on. Uh, but it's really five chapters. And in the second to last Mishnah, the fifth chapter, Ben Bagbag Omer, Turn the Torah this way, turn the Torah that way, and you'll find everything in it. Now, there's some people who take that in a very charitable way, and they think that they can find all sorts of uh, secrets to uh, nuclear physics in the Torah. I'm not sure that that's the case. But you will, when you study, as we know, you will find all sorts of things uh, in our study of Torah, which go in so many different directions. And today is going to be really about paleography more than anything else. If you already got the source sheet, and took a look at it, you probably saw some uh, unusual pictures. So before going to the source sheet, I just want to share a couple things with you, which are probably common knowledge, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. After all, if it's a Dafyomi Shear, we have to be on the same page. And, um, and uh, so that we're kind of all starting together. Communication in the ancient world, and when I say ancient world, I don't mean before the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean by the ancient world, 5000 BCE. Um, and I, I mean, I know that because as my students tell me, I was probably around at the time. It was all oral. We don't have any, we have not found anything, any evidence of any writing of any sort. It seemed to begin around then in Mesopotamia with something that we call cuneiform writing. And cuneiform writing was essentially marks that were made by sticks that were put into into cement or into concrete, it was into into tin that were that were um, made with different shapes, which are basically just stick shapes. And each stick shape, each set of stick shapes, made a word. So you can imagine how difficult it was to master that writing and reading. And scribes, who were chiefly employed for the purpose of either royal chronicles or contracts. Um, what really had to be an elite class. Most everybody was illiterate, had to be. Uh, and uh, and in the, in the, a little bit later, um, we think probably around the third millennium BC, perhaps a little earlier, in Egypt, they developed something of a similar system, but instead of it being these stick figures, it was hieroglyphics, which is um, images, and the images represent words. Uh, and so, again, it was something where you, you would have to really master thousands and thousands upon thousands of images in order to really be able to communicate in writing. Um, somewhere around, the, around, we think, the 18th or 17th century BCE, which is also pretty old, it's around the time of the Avot, we find for the first time, in other words, we have found in, uh, in archeological digs, we have found remnants of some form of writing, really in the North Sinai, seems to be where it started, which utilized a new system, which if you think about it, was revolutionary. And the idea was that there would be an image and the image wouldn't stand for an idea or a word, the image would stand for a sound. And so there was an image that looked something like an ox, and that sound was an aleph, because the ancient Canaanite word which, by the way, made its way to Hebrew, for an ox is an aleph, right? So an aleph looks like an ox. Uh, a bet looks like a house. And so therefore, instead of having an image that looks like a house, for stand for house, and another image that sounds for ox be an ox, and another one that stands for walking, and another one be for breaking, and then another one being for destruction, and then you'd have to have all these symbols saying the ox walked into the house and destroyed it. Instead, each one of these images, these pictographs, as it were, represented a sound. And then the sounds could come together to, be, to make words. And by the way, that meant that you had to master far less images, far fewer images, in order to be able to read or write. And that's when we start finding students writing exercises. I'm gonna show you an example of that in alphabets. And that alphabet, which is really a proto-Canaanite alphabet, is the alphabet, is the great-great-great-great-grandfather of alphabets such as Hebrew, Aramaic alphabet we're going to talk about, which is the alphabet we use, actually, Arabic, 
Greek, Latin, which means English, all comes from that alphabet. You think about it, we have a picture, and that picture makes the sound bit. We have another picture makes the sound get. And that's how we communicate in writing. The reason that's at all related to Dafyomi, because again, everything is in there, is because of a sugya that we ran into last week in the context of Tiva. And here it is, source two. It, the issue is as follows. The background of the issue is as follows. And this has a lot to do with things that we've talked about in as far back as the first shiur when we talked about intent. The shiur, the amount of writing for which you are liable is two letters. What happens if you decided you wanted to write the name Shimon, which is five letters, Shin, Mem, Ayin, Vav, Nun, and instead you wrote the Shin and the Mem and you stopped? So the Mishnah says you're liable. Why are you liable? The Brighton says you're liable because you wrote the name Shame. Remember, Noach's son, Shame. So you wrote a name already, Shame. And therefore you are liable. The Gemara then challenges that in source two. And that's a pasuk that we know from Mezuzah. We say it twice in, in Shema. Once in the paragraph of Shema, once in the paragraph of Vayim Shemua, Zvarim Vav, Zvarim Yudalef. Uchtav tam, write them. Now, write them has a double suffix. Ufechatavta, you shall write, and um, you shall write them, the double suffix. So for Midrashic purposes, we play with it, which is shetek tivat tama. The writing has to be tam, has to be perfect. What does that mean? Shelo yichtov alafin ayinin ayinin alafin. Don't write an aleph like an ayin, and don't write an ayin like an aleph. That's a very weird thing that somebody might suggest doing. Why do we have to correct against it? We're going to see that in a minute. Betin, kafin, kafin, betin. Don't write a bet like a kaf and a kaf like a bet. Now, bet and kaf, I understand. Because what's the difference between a bet and a kaf is one little leg sitting off the back of the bet. Take that off, you got a kaf. Gamin, sadin, sadin, gamin. It's Gimel and Sadi. Evidently, the way that they wrote Gimel and Sadi were very close. Dalatin, Reishin, Reishin, Dalatin, that one we get. Dalat and Reish, very close. Take the, the little spits off the back of the top leg of the Dalat, the top bar of the Dalat, you got a Reish. Heihin, Chetin, Chetin, Heihin. Don't write a hey like a Chet, a Chet like a hey. That's also easy. If you fill in the airspace on the left side of a hey, you got a Chet. Vavin, Yodin, Yodin, Vavin. We understand why a Vav and a Yod could be very close because a Vav is simply a long Yod. Zayinin, Nunin, Nunin, Zayinin. Now, it's interesting that the, that the Brighton is giving us all these examples. Evidently, Zayin and Nun look somewhat alike. Is, what kind of Nun is that? We're also going to talk about that. Tetin, Pefin, which is Pei. Pefin, Tetin, a Tet and a Pei. If you look at because of the circular inside, could be alike. Now, what is it that the, that the Halakha is warning us against? So Rashi says that it means that since people often pronounce an Aleph like an Ayin, they might write an ayin instead of an olive. The Ramban and the Rashban, I quoted the Rashban here, quotes that and says, that makes no sense. And as you see in the highlighted piece, Rashban says, are you trying to tell me that somebody would write in the first verse of the Torah, and this hits home for me, as you'll see, instead of Rashid Bar Elohim, eight hashamayim betaaretz, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, eight hashamayim, Rather, they would write which means a time for heaven and a time for earth. That's preposterous. And then the Rashbah goes on to say what it really means is that every one of these errors, if you move one leg this way, you'll end up with the other letter. And he goes through, all, through the ones that are kind of difficult, like the Aleph and the Ayin, the Tet and the Pen, explaining why the mechanics of writing could, would make them that sort of mistake. But the point of this Brita is actually the next line. We go back into the big print in source two. Kfufin, shutin, shutin, kfufin. Kafuf means bent over. Pashut means stretched out. What's a bent over letter and what's a stretched out letter? The answer is a pay is a bent over letter and a pay sofit, a final pay, is a stretched out letter. The same thing with sadi and chaf and nun. All right, we'll talk about mem later. Kfufin, shutin, shutin, kfufin. And then mem means samachin, samachin mem. Notice that mem is dealt with differently. Now, why would a mem look like a samach? 
The answer is final mem looks very much like a samach. It's one of the things that kids studied, studying uh, their, uh, for the first time, how to write and how to read in Hebrew. And one of the first things they get confused about is a final mem and a samach, because they're very much alike. And then the Brita goes on, we'll just finish it pro forma, stumin tuchin tuchin stumin, which means a parsha, which is stuma, which means that at the end of the parsha, there's only a break of nine letters, and, and the next parsha begins on the same line. Patuach means a parsha where you have to skip and go to the next line to start, or vice versa, tuchin stumin. It means parsha ptucha le'asana stuma, stuma le'asana ptucha. And then, let's say you wrote the Torah. You've all seen what Shiratayam looks like in the Torah. It's written in a staggered form. What happens if you wrote some other part of the Torah in a staggered form? Or if you wrote Shiratayam in the regular form, if you use the wrong kind of ink, if you put gold plating on top of the names of Hashem, in all cases, that Sefer Torah is invalid and has to be buried away. Now, the part that concerns us here is the part that I highlighted with the yellow and green highlighting. I used yellow and green simply to alternate so we could see the passages. Uh, but I just want to give an interesting parenthesis about the part that's right afterwards about Satum and Patuach. The Rambam in Hilchot Sefer Torah, and we're going to come back to this later on, in Hilchot Sefer Torah, the laws of writing a Sefer Torah in chapter 8 says that um, it is critical, he quotes this halacha, it is critical that in a proper Sefer Torah to be kosher, it has to have a parsha ptucha done correctly and a parsha stuma correctly. Meaning that if you were to write the first five verses of Breshi, which is the first day of creation, and then skip to the next line and start a new parsha, that would be invalid, that's a parsha stuma. And if you were to, uh, to go to some part, which is a parsha uh, ptucha, the end of chapter Dalid, and instead of starting chapter Hay on the next line, start on the same line, that would be invalid. The Rambam then turns around and says, all of our Sifrei Torah are different than each other, and they're all confused, and they're all wrong. And he says, therefore, I am going to present to you the correct list of parshot ptuchot and Parshot Stumot throughout all of Chumash. And it's right there in the Rambam, right there in the Mishnah Torah. He lists in Breshit all the Parshot Stumot, all the Parshot Tuchot, etc. And he says that the book that we use, because your question could be, why do you, how do you know any better than anybody else what should be Patuach and Satum? And he says, by the way, and also I'm going to show you how to write the Shira, both Shira Ta'azinu and Shira Ta'yam, which are written differently. And he says, the book that we used as the model for this is a book that we know was written by Ben Asher. I'll tell you about him in a minute. And was in Yushalayim for a long time. And now it is here in Fostat in Cairo. And we now know that that book that the Rambam was referring to was none other than the Aleppo Codex, the, code of the, the crown of Aleppo. I'm going to talk about that later on in the Shi'ur. But it, it has been considered for the last 600 years at least to be the absolute finest Tanakh that exists, finest copy of Tanakh that exists. I'll tell a little bit of the story of the, of, the, of the Codex a little bit later on. And so the Rambam used that as a model and said, based on here, I see there's a Parshat Tucha, Parshat He wrote it, and all Sifrei Torah should be written following that model. And for the most part, we do follow the Rambam's rules there. He also says how it how demonstrates how the Shirot should be written. All right, close that parenthesis. But the point for us is that, and this is why this is a challenge. Remember way back, about seven minutes ago, in Dr. Yomi time, that's a long time. Way back, we said that the problem we're dealing with in this case is if you wrote Shin and a Mem, and suddenly you realize that Shabbat, you'd be Chayav because you wrote two letters. But you didn't write two letters, you wrote a name. You wrote something of significance. But is it significant? What kind of mem did you write? You were writing Shimon, which means you wrote what we call a medial mem, not a final mem. So you wrote Shin and a mem that looks like it's part of the, part of the word, and then you stopped. Did you really write Shem? According to what we just read, you didn't. If you wrote that in the Torah, it would be invalid. That's not called writing. So the answer is as follows. The answer is that that rule of Shem Shimon is based on a different opinion a different opinion about the interaction between and the interchangeability 
between final letters and medial letters. To understand this next piece, we have to roll up to source one. Very briefly, source one is from chapter 29 of Amidbar. It is the korbanot that are brought on Sukkot. And the korbanot that are brought on Sukkot from day two through seven follow a very simple pattern, which is three verses each. And all the changes is Bayom Hasheni, Bayom Hashlishi, what day it is of Sukkot, and how many bulls. Otherwise, the korban is the same 14 lambs, two rams, one sair. Always the same. The difference is the bulls. Famously, the bull, the number of the bulls goes down. Famous thing with Bechama and Chanukah. Okay. However, there are several very faint deviations in the text, and I highlighted them. In the second day, the, the passage ends with Uminchata v'niskehem. In all the rest of it, it's niska. So there's an extra mem. I highlighted it with the yellow. There's an extra mem there. By the way, there's also an extra yod. We're going to ignore that. In the sixth day, that same word is instead unisacheha, which means there's an extra yod. And on the final day, in the middle pasuk ends, instead of kemishpat, kemishpat tam. Okay, there we go. Now, let's go back to our Gemara. Hu de'amar kihaitana, detanya rabbi yura ben betera omer, ne'amar b'sheni v'niskehem, v'shishi unisacheha v'ashvi'i kemishpat tam. He points these, to these three deviations in the, in the Torah's commands about the Korbanot on Sukkot. And he says, what do you get there? You get hare mem, yod, mem. What did you spell out with the letters that are in the yellow? You spelled the mem, a yod, and a mem. What does mem, yod, mem spell? Mayim. Mikan rem is the nisuch mayim in Torah. He said, this is the hint, the textual hint, that we have to have a special libation of water on Sukkot. We're familiar with nisuch mayim on Sukkot. He says that's the source. Rabbi Kiva disagrees as a different source. He says that's the source, which means he's willing to look at a final mem in the first word and read it like an opening mem. In other words, he says, final mem, opening mem, it's both a mem, and I don't care. And therefore, if I write shame with a medial mem, it's like I wrote the whole word shame. And we're going to see some examples of Tanakh of this. Right? And then the Gemara says something that's going to take us into a whole other direction. So the Gemara now infers that if you have a letter that's supposed to be a medial letter, and instead you made it a final letter, it's valid because you had a final mem, then a yod, then a final mem, and that spells mayim, even though the first one is a final mem. So that's valid. Satum nami, satum vaso patuach kasher. So it must be also that if you had a final letter and instead wrote it as an open letter, medial letter, like shame, it's also valid. Right? And that's why our Tana must agree with Rabbi Yudav and Matera and say that medial mem, final mem, interchangeable, and therefore if you wrote shin mem, that's shame, and I don't care that at the end of the word it should have looked a little different. And the Gemara challenges this. Midami. Hear this. An open letter that you made a sealed letter, meaning a mem, that's a medial mem, and instead you made it a final mem, you've actually enhanced its kedusha. Why? To Amar of Chista. Mem hayu omdin. This is such a powerful statement, and we're going to spend time on this, so that's why I put it in, that, in the Safrut font. Mem and Samech in the tablets stood miraculously. What does that mean? So remember that the Torah describes the tablets as being written on both sides. Mizeh umizeh and Mishnei Ebrahim on both sides. The Midrash Chazal on that is that they were actually carved all the way through. So that the, the letters weren't just carved out, they're carved through. So, you know, you can carve a chaf and There'll be sort of like a backward C there, and you could read a chaf. But if you carve a samach, what's going to happen? If you carve a samach, the middle's going to fall out, and all you got is a hole. So he says, the mem and the samach in the luchot, in the tablets that Moshe brought down from our Sinai, stood miraculously. What does that tell you? That tells you that a final mem is somehow nicer, holier, more special than a medial mem, because it's involved in a miracle. Okay, good. Elasa, we're going to come back to that statement. Elasatumba so patuach grue kamagrole. 
But if you have what's supposed to be a final letter and you write it as a medial mem, you've, you've lowered its value, its kedusha. Here we go. Minatspach Sofim Amrum. And that's the title of the Shir. Minatspach Sofim Amrum. What does that mean? Minatspach are the five letters we have in Hebrew that have two forms, a medial form and a final form. Now you take a look at that statement and you're immediately struck by something, which is, why didn't you list the letters in order? It should have been Cham Napatz, right? Because it's Chaf, then Mem, then Nun, then Pei, then Tzadi. Why is it Minatspach? So the answer is that we're having a little play on words here. Minatspach, Sofim Amrum, that Minatspach were something that were initiated or innovated by the prophets. By the prophets. Now, this is what's problematic right here on the spot, because if it's later prophets who instituted the idea of final letters, then how was the Mem in the Luchot, how was that miraculous? How did it exist? There wasn't an open circle of a Mem, right? So the Gemara is going to deal with that, but just now about the order of the letters, we're playing with it as if the word is min sofach, from your, your prophets. Sofim are another word for prophets in the Midrash. So min sofach. So man sofach, sofim amrum, it's a play on words. We rearrange the letters to make it work kind of conveniently. But the Gemara challenges that and says, the Tispara can that be? Could the Nevi'im make up new letter forms? The Haktiv, Elah mitzvot, in the last pasuk of Sefer Vayikra, it says, these are the mitzvot. And the word these is here seen as a canonization. A Navi is not allowed to innovate anything new. That's it. The law is sealed. Ella, they answer differently. The letters existed, meaning there were two forms of these five letters already in existence. They just didn't know which ones go at the beginning of the word, in the middle of the word, which go at the end. So the, the Navim came along and they made a takana that the uh, this form goes in the middle and this form goes at the end that's also an innovation that's also a halachic issue the answer that they give here is that it was always there it was always the halacha that a closed mem is at the end of the word but at some point and it's a very difficult point I'll, sh- I'll point out why it's difficult at some point it got forgotten which goes where and then the Nevi'im came and not innovated, but reintroduced something that was always there that they reminded the people of. Of course, it's very difficult to say this because we, of course, assumed that there was a Sefer Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote a Sefer Torah, gave to the Levim according to the Midrash. He wrote one for every Shevet. And all you had to do if you didn't know where the final letters were to, is to open up a Sefer Torah and see how does Moshe Rabbeinu write Shamayim in the first Pasuk or Elohim in the first Pasuk, Reshit Bara Elohim. What kind of mem is there there? Oh, that's a closed mem. So the other mem is in the middle, right? And uh, just look at the word hashamayim. You got a middle mem and a final mem. You could solve everything right there. And go a few psukim down, you could find there's a final tzadi, it's hashamayim with ha'aretz. Fairly simple. So it's kind of difficult to say that they forgot it and nobody had access until Naveen came along and told them he could have opened up a Sefer Torah. Okay. Um, there is a midrash uh, about this, which is really fascinating. Uh, in the Albeck version of the Midrash, it's a little bit shorter. The, the um, earlier version of the Midrash has a little bit length, but I kept this in here because his version is considered to be um, probably more better according to the, the manuscripts, but I'll share with you what was in the other version also. They have a different version. goes back to Moshe. He said, no, it was something established by the Nevi'im. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous story. There was a rainy day. Chachamim didn't come into the Beit Midrash. There were little kids who were learning. They were learning how to read. They were learning their alphabet. They said, let's study ourselves what the Nevi'im taught. Amru matam katuv mem mem nun nun tzadi tzadi pei pei kaf kaf. And by the way, this is a question that many Jewish children ask in first grade or second grade. 
How come there are two forms of a nun? How come there are two forms of a pay? It's, it's kind of strange. We're not used to it in English. If you know Greek, you're familiar with it from Sigma, but you don't know it in English. It doesn't exist in Latin. We're not familiar with it. So, Mapitom, why, why is there a nun look like this in some places and a nun look like that in another place? And so they said, Mimaamar le Maamar. Mem, mem, it's beautiful drasha. Little kids coming up this drasha. Mimaamar le Maamar. Mem stands for Maamar. From a statement to a statement. Mineaman le Neaman, from the trustworthy one to the trustworthy one. Mitzadik le Tzadik. Right? Mipeh le Peh, from one mouth to the other. And Mikaf le Kaf. And by the way, important to note that the names of these letters are named after those body parts. A Kaf. If we're going to see it a little later on. It looks like a hand. A pet looks like a mouth. Okay? Um, and, and the drasha is the kaf, mi kaf yado shel hakadosh baruchu, la kaf yado shel Moshe. The Torah was given from the hand of Hashem to the hand of Moshe. By the way, the other ones is ma'amar, the ma'amar of Hashem to the ma'amar of Moshe, ne'aman, that Hashem is ne'aman, he gave it to Moshe, is me uh, is Neman who bechobetim Moshe is Neman who the other Neman, and they do it also at Sadiq, Sadiq Hashem and at Sitkat Hashem Asa. The other version of Midrash has psukim for all of them. Simu otan v'yamdu chachamim gedolim Israel. So they actually went through all five of these things, gave beautiful drashot, and these little kids became great chachamim. V'yeshomrim Rabbi Leizer, Rabbi Shua, Rabbi Kiva Yu. And there's some there's an opinion that says that they were actually the great giants of the second generation. So the first generation of Yavne, Rabbi Ezra Meshua, and their student Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so beautiful midrash about this whole Menatzpach. But this is a very big problem. As I told you, um, the first script that we ever, that we know of, that uses pictograms, that uses images to, sound, have, to stand for sounds, which reduces the images that you have to learn from thousands to, in our case, 22. Um, is the Proto-Canaanite alphabet. If you take a look on page two, you could see a chart, and on the left side, the early one, is that original alphabet. The, on the left side, the very top thing, everybody could see it, you could see a head of an ox. That's an olive. It then shifts in Middle Hebrew, Middle Hebrew script, this is called Hebrew script, to an olive, which looks like a line straight up and down, and then kind of a, uh, an L kind of going through it. And then in the late form, it comes close to what our olive looks like. Okay, what's happening here is that in the early days of writing, the writing was done again by an elite core of a cadre of uh, scribes, wasn't being done very often. And as time went on over the next few centuries, and there was a need because of increased commerce and increased trade and increased interaction with other cultures. And there was a need for more people to become proficient. Letters became more standardized and they became more even so that they would be more like on a line. And we see this, and I'll show you a couple examples over the centuries, how the writing in this script becomes more standardized. This script that you're looking at, and for right now, look really at Middle, he, middle Hebrew is called Hebrew script. We call it Paleo-Hebrew, but it's Hebrew script. The Chazal referred to it as Ktav Ivri. Now, one point of information. We have found hundreds, nay, thousands of inscriptions on different things, on coins, on amulets, on ostraca. We found it on all sorts of things, on bulla, going back to the 11th century BCE, and we have found nothing before the 5th century BCE written in anything but that, but that writing. That's how Jews wrote. Okay, so now go to source three, source five in Sanhedrin. So Marukva says, originally, or Marzutra says, originally the Torah was given to us in Ktav Ivri. Now if the Torah was given to us in Ktav Ivri, that kind of gives us difficulty with the idea of the Mem and the Samach and the Luchot being miraculous. Let's look at Ktav Ivri and look at the two orange lines. The orange line for a Mem. You see what a Mem looks like? It looks like waves of water because Mem is Mayim. So therefore, it looks like water. The Samach is a stick with three um, perpendicular lines going through it. 
Those things, there's nothing miraculous about the way that they would stand. By the way, take a look right under the Samach and you see the ayin. The ayin is a circle because the ayin is an eye, ayin. Okay, but keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. So this statement becomes very, does not sit well, doesn't, will not work with Rav Chista's statement that the Memon Samach stood miraculously in the Luchot. So he says as follows, the originally the Torah was given in Ktav Ivri and Lashon HaKodesh, in Hebrew and in Hebrew script. Chazrani nalahem bimei Ezra, Ktav Ashurit Lashon Ami, a wild statement. In the days of Ezra, that Ezra is 5th century BCE, the return from Babel, the Torah was given again in Ktav Ashuri. Ktav Ashuri, we call Aramaic script, it's the Hebrew that we all know. It is what down here is called modern. Right? The Hebrew that we know is called Ketav Ashuri. That's the way Chazal referred to it. Right? And Lashon Armi, it was given in Aramaic language. Be'rula and the Israel Ketav Ashurit v'lashon HaKodesh. Am Yisrael selected for themselves Aramaic script, meaning Ketav Ashuri, and Hebrew language. V'nichu lehed yotol Ketav Ivrit v'lashon Armi, and they left for everybody else. We'll see who everybody else is. Um, meaning for non-sanctified purposes, they left Tav Ivri, meaning the Hebrew script, and Aramaic language. And we'll see an example of that in a little bit. Man Hedyotot, who are these Hedyotot that they left them for? Amrav Chista Kutai, the Samaritans. And by the way, if you go today to Har Grizim and you go take a look at a Sefer Torah that the, that the Samaritans read from, you will see that it is written in Hebrew script, not in Assyrian, not in Aramaic script, meaning you would have to use this tab table to read to be able to decipher it. Now, my Ktav Ivrit, what's Ktav Ivri? Ravchista Ktav Libona, that's what they referred to. Okay. Now, let's see a little bit more about Ezra here. Tanya, Rav Yossi Omer, Ra'uyaya Ezra, Shinatain Torah, Israel. Ezra was worthy that he should have been the vehicle through which God gave the Torah. You know, Malay Kidmo Moshe, had Moshe not come first, right? How do we know that Ezra was sort of a parallel to Moshe? At Matan Torah, it says Moshe went up to God. That's when he's going up to get the instructions before Matan Torah. Ezra is the one who made Aliyah from Bavel. So Moshe went up, Ezra went up, that refers to Torah. Moshe says, Moshe says, Hashem commanded me to teach you Chukim Mishpatim. Ezra Omer ki Ezra hechin levavol idrosh Torah Adonai v'lasot l'amei b'Yisrael Chokum Mishpat. That Ezra was the one who taught Chokum Mishpat. So Ezra is presented as something of a later parallel to Moshe. But he came too late to be the one through whom the Torah was given. So even though the Torah was not given through him, it got changed through him. What? Haktav the script was changed through him, meaning the script up until his day was one kind of script. Through Ezra, it got changed. So at Pasuk in Ezra, talks about which we're interpreting now as the Ktav that has changed. Pasuk in Daniel from the same period. Uchtiv, and now in Dvarim, in Dvarim, when, when Moshe tells us about what a king is supposed to do, it says he's v'chatav et mishnei ha-Torah hazot. He's supposed to write mishnei ha-Torah. We understand mishnei Torah usually is a reference to Sefer Dvarim. In this particular case, it means a copy of the Torah. But the drasha is k'tav ha-ra'ui lihishtanot. This is a script that ultimately should be changed. As if to say, this is the script that we got now, but it should ultimately be changed to the nicer form, which is Tav Ashurit. Why do I say nicer? So, according to this entire direction here, Tav Ashurit was foreign to us. We were not familiar with it. We certainly did not use it up until the times of Ezra, as all of the archaeological evidence indicates. And as a result of that, that's when it changed. Not everybody agrees. Tanya Rebbe Omer, because remember we have Rav Chista with the Mem and the Samach. Tanya Rebbe Omer, Originally, the way that we have the Torah today, that's how it was given. He disagrees. 
He says, we were given the Torah in Tavashurit. Once Am Yisrael sinned, they lost it. And they used this inferior script. Once they did Shuva, they got it back. And Magid Mishneh somehow related to the Shanot, the change in the text. And there's a Pasuk in Zechariah, meaning at the beginning of the second temple period, they got it back. And it's all very difficult because it means that when they got the Torah, it was in Tavashuri. When they sinned, we have to assume that's Cheta Egel, uh, that they lost it. And they didn't ha- get it back, and we have no idea how they got it back, but they got it back in the beginning of the cycle, second double period. And so therefore, Rebbe says, Lamini Krashma Ashuri, why is it called Ashur? Not because it came from Ashur, but Shimu Sherat Biktav. It's more beautiful. It's happier. It's nicer. Right? And... Then we have Rabbi Shimon Elazar, so we have two opinions. One opinion is the one that's best supported by the evidence. We always had Tavivri, and then we changed. By the way, historically, the reason we changed is because we became part of the Persian Empire, and we had to be able to write in their script to be able to communicate with them. We have Rebbe's opinion that says it's sw- switched back and forth, Ashuri, then Tavivri, then back to Ashuri. Shimon Elazar, Mishum Rabbi Eliezer, and Parta, Shemar Mishum Rabbi Elazar, Hamodai. Hamodai is from Modi'in. We always had It's an interesting choice he makes. He says that the, in, in the description of the Mishkan, it refers to the hooks on the pillars where they would put the curtains on the outside of the chatzer. A vav is a hook. Now, by the way, if you look at a vav, a vav looks like a hook. And a vav in Tavivri looks like a hook. Um, you could see it uh, there. And the word vav means that. So it's, again, a perfect pictogram. But his drush is ma'amudim lo nishtanu. Just like the pillars never changed, avavim lo nishtanu. The vavs didn't change. Meaning the text never changed. He's got a pretty strong argument because in the story of Purim, it says that they sent documents to every nation in their script and their language and to the Jews in their script and their language, which indicates that we had a different script than the others had. Just like our, te- our language never changed, our text never changed. Okay. The Talmud Rishalmi takes this, uh, the same piece, presents these different opinions, and then, uh, to cut to the chase, because to keep an eye on the clock, um, but I want to point out um, at, the, uh, at the, the bottom section of the Talmud Rishalmi, it's a passage in Rishalmi, in Masechet Megillah, Perak Aleph. This is in the Sugya, if you recall, in the, in the first Perak of, Mish, of Masechet Megillah, there's a series of Mishnayot that we call the Einbeins, where it starts with Einbein Adarishon, Adarshini, and then it goes to Einbein Shabbat Yom Tov, Einbein Shabbat Yom Kippurim, all over things. And one of the things is Einbein Sfarim, and opens up a door to talk about text and script and, and fonts, as it were. So in this discussion, it says, Asuk, we talked about the king, we saw that in the Babli. Same drasha, a, 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 a script that should be changed, that will ultimately be changed. We saw this already. We saw this in the Babli. The Torah was given in Tavashuri. Okay, now he says it differently. In the Bavli, it was Vavei Amudim, just like the Amudim never changed, the Vavim never changed. Here he says, no, Vav means a hook. And therefore, it means that the Vavim of Torah should look like pillars. They should look straight up. And that's what a Ashuri Vav looks. It's just a straight line. Watch this. Amar of Levi. Remember, we had our Memon Samach problem. According to those who say that the Torah was given what was the miracle in the, in the Luchot? Was the Ayin. Why was the Ayin a miracle? Because it's a circle in Ktavivri. But according to the ones who say the Torah was given in Ashurit, notice he doesn't mention the Mem. He says the Samach was a miracle. Now, there are final mems in the Aseret Adibrot, like, Anochi Adonai Lecha Shehotzeticha Me'eretz Mitzrayim, right, Mivet Avadim, Rabbi Yirmiya Vashem Rabbi Chia Barbav Rabbi Simon Tavayon Omrin, Torah Tarishonim Lo Haya Lo Heishalahem Lo Memshalahem 
Satum. It's an interesting thing. Originally, the mem was not a sealed letter, meaning there was no, uh, there was no final form of the mem. A regular mem existed there. We're going to see a couple examples of that. Now, before moving on, I just want to point your attention to the chart because there's a few things on the chart we have to see. Take a look starting with the chaf and the arrow that points to the chaf. You will see that the chaf is a straight line with a little V on top. Take a look at the nun. The nun is a straight line with a little hook on top. Take a look at the pay. The pay is a straight line with a little line on top. Tzadi is a straight line with a line going in the other direction on top. That's what their Ktavi reform looks like. It's only when you get to the final column on the right side that you see two forms of the letter, of those five letters. All right, keep that in mind, and now we're gonna move on. Um, I wanna show you here a couple examples of, and again, this is something you won't encounter that often in a Shir Gemara, but it's part of what we're learning. Um, this is one of the old, perhaps the oldest example we have of Tavivri in any form that we can put together. In 1976, this was found in Izbat Sarta, which is in the northern part of Israel, not, not far from Haifa. And uh, underneath, you could see the actual rock it was on. But here it's uh, elongated, and here the archaeologists actually identified the letters or the numbers that we're referring to. In the bottom row of this, and this goes back again to perhaps the 12th century BCE, in the bottom row, you actually have an alphabet. But the alphabet, which looks to be a student's writing exercise, or he's practicing writing an alphabet, goes from left to right. That's another thing that we found in, the, in archaeological digs, is that in, sometimes the direction was, uh, was a variant. Sometimes go right to left, sometimes left to right. In this case, you could see an aleph, you could make out a dalit as the fourth letter. The thing that looks like an e is actually a hey, the vav there is that hook, right? You could see the tet, which is the circle with the x in it. Two letters later, you see a chaf. You see the chaf there, it is a line with three things sticking out, like a hand sticking out. Um, and uh, some of the other letters are hard to identify. A tab certainly is a, uh, a, looks like a cross. By the way, that also looks like a tau in Greek, which ends up looking like a T. And you see how these all kind of transfer around. Um, uh, but I want to take you a thousand, year, uh, a thousand years later uh, in a story that at some point, I have to share with you because it's an amazing story. Uh, in 1971, there was a cave found uh, underneath um, an area that somebody was building a house in Givata Miftar. Givata Miftar is in the northern part of Yerushalayim. It was liberated, conquered, settled, whatever term you want to use, uh, in 1967. And after the archaeologists went through everything and identified where there were significant sites, uh, building permits were given, developers were, uh, were put their bids in, and, uh, and they were able to start building. And there was a particular site where, um, where the archaeologists had found a cave underneath where this house was going to be built. I've been there a few times. I'll have to tell you about it sometime. And on the wall of the cave was this inscription. Now, this inscription is first century BCE, around the year 35 BCE or so. And yet, they're still writing in Tavivri, even though... The holy texts, including things that we find from Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are being written at this time and even earlier, are written in what we would call Hebrew, which is Ktav Ashuri. This is being written in Ktav Ivri. Uh, and um, I'm just going to show you the fourth line, the seven lines here. The fourth line, I'll show you what's written. It says, Po uh, di Yalid. You see the two yods in a row? It's like the X of the thing hanging off it. Di Yalid. Yod, Lamed Yod, and a Dalad, right? Looks like the Delta a little bit. Um, and then, Birushalem. And you see the last letter is a Mem. By the way, there is no final Mem, no final any letter in Tavi 3. Okay. Uh, one last thing I want to show you, just really out of interest, is uh, one of the real astounding things that have been found in the last 20 years is in uh, a site south of, south of Beit Shemesh. We had no idea anything was there. Uh, approximately 15 years ago, suddenly they found the remains of an old town. And there have been several seasons of very important digging there. Uh, the town dates back to at least the 10th century BCE. It's a Jewish town that dates back from then. 
there are those who identify it as Sha'arayim, which is one of the towns of Yehuda in uh, the book of Yoshua. And in 2008, this ostracon was found there, which is the oldest example that we have of actual Hebrew communication of writing. There's something written here, and everybody disagrees about what it actually says. There's a mention of Melech here. There might be an Almana here. There might be an Ebed here. All right, unclear, but this is from Chirbet Kiafa. If you have a chance to go visit there with a tour guide, it's really an astounding place. Uh, parenthetically, unlike almost every city that we found from that period, it has two gates. Uh, one that faces sort of uh, to the um, to the east towards Yerushalayim, and one that faces sort of to the west towards the Philistine area, and that may be the reason that the town was called Sha'arayim, which means two gates. Okay, but um, the the purpose of showing all this is to say these this is the kind of text that we use. And by the way, in these texts, there are no final letters or medial letters. So I'm going to now pose this question to you, one that you've probably thought about. Or now that you now that I'm mentioning, you say, yeah, I should have thought about that. Why are there final letters and medial letters in Hebrew for those five words? Well, for those five letters, why mem nun sadi pecha? Why do those have final forms? Right. So before going there, I just want to show you the following. Um, you, what you see here is is the book of Yeshayahu. In the book of Yeshayahu, chapter nine, uh, these verses, by the way, are hotly disputed verses. They are, uh, meaning they're hotly disputed, they were the focal point of many disputations in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, uh, with Christians, uh, because it talks about the birth of a son, and uh, he will be the one, who, the, the wise counselor, the prince of peace, etc., which is undoubtedly talking about uh, either the son of Chizkiyahu or, uh, or Chizkiyahu himself, but in any case, we know what the Christians did with it. In any case, in Pasuk Vav, as you could say, the word says, and if you look at the word is highlighted in yellow, and I highlighted the mem in green, because you could see the mem in the middle of the word is a final mem. And if that weren't enough, I want to show you the Aleppo Codex. So very briefly, the Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo Codex was a book that, as per, as per Rambam's testimony, and we have testimony of it from other sources, the Aleppo Codex was a Tanakh that was uh, written down by, gone over many times carefully by Aharon ben Asher. Now the ben Asher family, along with the ben Naphtali family, those were the two great families, dynasties as, as it were, of Masoretes, of Baalei Mesorah, whose job was to transmit and then codify the proper text of the Tanakh, including vowels and tamiamikra trope marks um, and uh, and they put in masoretic notes which you can see in the column here which is a whole science of how to decipher them that would indicate things about the specific words and letters in the text so you could know whether or not you had a proper text the lepo codex um, as i said made its way to Yerushalayim was there for a while and then made its way to Egypt. It was there in the Rambam's time and the Rambam used it and consulted it. The Maimonides family took the Aleppo Codex with them. From all the evidence we have this is what happened. Took the Aleppo Codex with them when they migrated to Syria in the 14th century. And it came to the town of Aleppo, which is a major trading town and a major Jewish community. Um, and it was put there into the main Bay Knesset. And for 500 years, um, at least, we have records of letters written by the Jewish community all over the world, almost every major Jewish community, writing a letter to Aleppo saying, we please want to know how, for our own Sifri Torah, for our own Tanakh, whatever it may be, to know how this letter is written, how this phrase is, there are parshat tucha, parshat tumai here, how's the shira written, etc. And then they would get a letter back from the sages of Aleppo, the guardians of the Keter, kept under lock and key, is very careful, and they would say, this is how it is in the Keter, and that's how people would then modify their Sifre Torah. The Keter was the book. Um, the Keter uh, remained in Aleppo, and really under lock and key, and great scholars who came and wanted to consult with it, you had to put up a very big fight in order to be able to even get access to it, and the access was also always under guard, etc., we have a couple of pictures from the 19th century 
of Christian scholars who came to Aleppo and were given access. I don't think the community really had a choice. And they took several pictures of individual pages. Uh, but in 1947, after the miracle of November 29th, when the UN voted in favor of partition, there were <clears throat> uh, riots that broke out in every major Arab city, including in Aleppo. The shul was burnt down. And as far as we knew, the, the Keter was burned down too, was burned also. But miraculously, in 1958, a Syrian man came and knocked on the door of Professor Yitzhak Ben-Svi, who was a great Judaica scholar, who was president of the State of Israel, and handed him the Aleppo Codex. It had been safeguarded in Syria and smuggled out, and this fellow came to him and handed it to him. And here's the Aleppo Codex, an amazing treasure. It sits today in Hechal HaSefer, which is that section of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem that's shaped like a pot and dedicated to the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there's a special place where the Codex sits. However, the Aleppo Codex came incomplete. It came with almost all of Chumash missing and much of Ketubim missing. Almost all of Chumash missing all the way up until Vayelach. So we have, we have Hazinu there and Rezot Bracha. We have all of Nevi'im. We have the first part of Ketubim, and that's all. The first part and the last part we assumed were actually burned in the fire, and this is what was saved. Um, we were able to reconstruct what the Keter said based on all sorts of chuvot throughout the centuries. When people ask questions, we had a record of what the answer was and what it looked like in the Keter. Uh, Keter, because it was the crown, it was the glory of Aleppo. Interesting enough, a few years ago, suddenly individual pages started turning up from those missing sections. So it's indeed possible that uh, part, the other parts of the Keter still exist and are still in hiding somewhere, and we're still waiting to get them. And of course, every page of the Keter that we get is, is, a, that we get is, a, is an invaluable find and, uh, uh, and precious beyond, beyond rubies. Okay, that's the Aleppo Codex. I can't show you the Aleppo Codex on this next verse because we don't have Sefer Nehemia in the Aleppo Codex. But in Sefer Nehemia, we see by its Amishar Hagai Laila, this is Nehemi describing his own work in building the walls. That's why he came to Yerushalayim. Now look at the word Asherheim. The mem there is a medial mem at the end of the word, which is how we started the whole shir, shame, with a medial mem at the end of a word. So you see an example of a final mem in the middle of a word in Yishayahu and a medial mem at the end of a word in Nechemia, which tells you that the mem plays a little differently. Interestingly enough, all of these variations we find are only about the mem. The other four letters seem to be very straightforward. Final nun is always a final nun, medial nun is always a medial nun, and there's no games played. Now, the last piece is really wild. There is a midrash in Breshit Rabbah. This also shows up in different versions in the Gemara. It talks about Torah Toshu Reb Meir. Reb Meir, as you know, was a great scribe. And Reb Meir had a Sefer Torah in which there were certain things that were written a little differently than our standard Torah. Whether they were written in the text or as glosses, we don't know. Uh, so one example of that is in the Torah in Sefer Bereshit, when we have the description of the descent of Yaakov's family, it says, Uvnei Yehuda, Uvnei Naftali, Uvnei Zulun, Uvnei Dan, the children of Dan, Chushim. And it lists only one name, which seems to be a mistake because you can't have children and only one name. And so we explain that Uvnei Dan may refer to the fact that his whole family, the grandchildren, we have different ways of explaining it. But Torah Tosh, Reb Meir, in Reb Meir's version of the Sefer Torah, Matsukatu Uven Dan Chushim. In his version, it said, Uben Dan Chushim, Dan son was Chushim. And that seems to fit. I'm only showing that to you because I want you to, to get to be familiar now with the idea that the Sefer Torah Shor Meir is a phenomenon that the Balei Midrash are familiar with. Now, in a Midrash Breshit Rabbati, which is a later Midrash, and this is not in the standard edition, this is an edition that's found based on three different manuscripts that uh, Epstein publicized over 100 years ago, we have the following. Instead of all right? And then, good. It's in this statement. The following are psukim that are written in a Sefer Torah in Rome. 
and it was hidden, buried away in the Beit Knesset of Severus, with some letters and words different than what we have. And for instance, and I only brought a couple examples, the ones that are relevant to us, when Yitzchak says to Esau, go hunt and get me food, because I'm going to die, he says, look at that mem, that's the end of a word. And then when uh, when uh, Yaakov is talking to Yosef and he tells him that your mother died and I buried her on the way, it says, Vayikbareha Sham. Sham, there's a mem at the end of a word, medial mem. In, uh, in Vayikra, when it talks about the chatat, it says, Vlakacha koin midam hachatat. Again, medial mem. In Dvarim, Vlo'avitem la'alot. Again, a medial mem. And Vyashugam hemeta aretz. Again, a medial mem. So we find all sorts of places where the mem seems to play back and forth. And by the way, we found inscriptions from the second temple period and even afterwards where we found sentences written and the mem in them was written a final mem in the middle and a medial mem at the end and it didn't seem to make much of a difference. So let's go back and try to figure out what's with these letters. The first thing is it's very easy to explain nun sari pechaf. Nun Sari Pechaf, and again, we have to go back to page two and to look at the chart. As I pointed out, the Nun, the Tzari, the Pei, and the Chaf, in their original form, in Ktav Ivri, were sticks with some sort of hook on the top, one way or the other, which means the simplest thing to do when writing them is that how they get transferred. They transfer to a stick with something on top. What is a Chaf? Look at final Chaf. Look at a Nun. Final nun, look at pei, look at sadi. Those are all sticks with something on top, and the variation on top changes what the letter is. Those are the essential letters. What happened is, if you're familiar with, um, with Greek, at the end of a word, we write a sigma differently than we write it in the middle of a sentence because it's too hard to write it separately. You have to pick the pen up and write. A better example of that is Arabic, where we have numerous letters that are written differently when they are medial as opposed to final. Because when they're final, they can have a flourishing end. In the middle, you want to connect it to the next letter. And Arabic words, for the most part, are all written as one, one continuous pen um, stroke that, uh, that it covers all of the letters. There's a few letters that stand by themselves. But if you look, for instance, at how a lam, which is lamid, in Arabic is written, when it's the end of a word or in the middle of a word, it's written differently to make it easier to write. So take a look at what happens in the case of a nun, a pei, a tzadi, and a chaf. What happens is you simply take that long letter, and now I want you to imagine this. You take the bottom leg, and instead of vertical, you make it horizontal, and you got a chaf. Do this with a chaf. What is a chaf? A chaf is a line on top and a straight line going down. However, if you write that, and you want to continue writing in the same word, it's picking up the pen. So what do you do? Instead, you take that long line and half of it you make horizontal and suddenly you got a chaf that you can continue writing. And that's true for all four of those letters. Nun, chaf, pe, and sadi operate that way. And the change from medial to final was something that was early on and was fixed and never changed. And that's why we don't find any variations, not in Torah text, not in inscriptions or anything else. When we talk about the mem, the mem is evidently something that for hundreds of years, was floating around as being either this way or that way. And notice what the Yerushalmi said here on page two. Said in the very last piece, which is in yellow, Torah Rishonim, lo satum. They didn't have a hay that was sealed. You're not sure what that is. Or a mem that was sealed. In other words, their mem was just a regular mem, even at the end of a word. Of course, which calls into question our whole discussion about the Mem and the Samach in the Luchot and the miracle involved with them, because if the Mem was written that way, even in Tavashuri, then there's no miracle involved. It was written as a medial Mem. Of course, this is also moot, because it's, the best evidence that we have is that the only writing that we're familiar with was really an early form of what later we recognized as the Phoenician alphabet, which we refer to as Ktavivri, Paleo-Hebrew. And that was a text that, by the way, did not distinguish at all between final and medial forms for a very simple reason. It wasn't being written um, on, uh, on paper in the same way with the pen in which you want to have smooth movements. And it was really written as pictograms. So what we've done over the course of the last hour 
is we've taken a look through the history of paleography and the history of development of script. And we've seen how uh, examples of different kinds of script from different times and seen how those scripts have changed. We've seen what Ketav Yivri looks like. And later on, it become, we, we adopt Ketav Ashuri. We see that the Yerushalmi, which like the Babli, recognizes an opinion that the Torah was originally given in Ketav Yivri, but then says, according to that opinion, it was written in Ketav Yivri, the ayin was the miracle in the Luchot, because the ayin is simply a circle. And the ayin in the word, those ayins would all be miraculous because you can't have a circle cut out without the middle part falling out unless it's held up miraculously. So hopefully over the course of this hour, we've had a chance to see some new information, to, uh, to get some new insights into, um, into some unusual texts that we encountered in the Gemara. And... Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, gives us, uh, you know, broadens our horizons a little bit about, uh, about the nature of text.